What is it that makes someone a Christian? Is it simply that they believe in God, go to church, read the Bible and live in a certain way? Or is there more to it than that? How would you personally answer the question, what is it that makes someone a Christian? Or to come at it from another angle, uh, maybe to make it a bit more practical, uh, should someone who attends church for a certain amount of time uh, be allowed to become a member? Whether you want to put a specific time frame on that, say six months or a year or two years, or whether you want to say, well, it depends on an individual, but, but either way, is becoming a, a church member simply to do with having attended a particular church for a particular period of time? Many people think that way. Uh, one person will look at another and say, well, they've been coming to church for three years. Uh, why can't they become a member? Well, actually, it doesn't matter if someone has been coming for 30 years if they still haven't been born again. That's one reason why the distinction that the Apostle Paul is going to make in the verses in front of us this morning is so important. The distinction between those who are outwardly the people of God uh, and those who've been given new hearts. We're going to look at this distinction today and then come back uh, and look at how it helps us answer questions like these. We have two points this morning. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, which is simply that God's people inwardly aren't all God's people, or sorry, God's people outwardly aren't all God's people inwardly. God's people outwardly aren't all God's people inwardly. Uh, the distinction we're looking at this morning is found in the second half of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Maybe you read that and say, well, what does that even mean? Uh, what's all this talk about Israel uh, and how is it relevant to us? Well, if those are your questions, I'm glad you asked. Because if we can be clear about the distinction that Paul is making, it will help us understand not simply back then, but it will help us understand today. It will help us understand why people can know all about Christianity, be involved in churches, even preach sermons, and then walk away from it. It will help us understand why there are people in churches who seem to have no spiritual life about them. And it will help us see why someone could attend church religiously for years and yet of the elders say to them, we don't think you're ready to join because we don't think you're yet born again. So let's try to unpack this distinction. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul is saying that not all Israelites are true Israelites. You can be an Israelite in the flesh, but not in the spirit. Have you heard the term plastic paddy? It was used, uh, began to be used in the 1980s to describe Irish people who'd moved to England and they tried to leave their Irish identity behind. 
Uh, people said of them, well, they're Irish, but they're not really Irish. They and their children, they're plastic patties. Is that the type of distinction Paul is trying to make here? Is he talking about Israelites who were somehow ashamed of their nationality? Uh, well, not at all. Uh, Paul is making a spiritual distinction, not a national one or a cultural one. He's saying that it's possible to be part of the nation of Israel, but not to have faith in the God of Israel. Uh, plastic Israelites, if we want to use that term, could be committed, flag-waving nationalists who love their homeland and have never left it. They could refuse to associate with or eat with foreigners and yet still not share the faith of the nation's founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In other words, Paul is saying that those who are God's people outwardly aren't all God's people inwardly. He's saying that there is an Israel within Israel, that there's a bigger Israel, uh, all who, who, who are born into it, who, who bear that name, but inside there's a smaller Israel, those who truly believe in Israel's God. Uh, boys and girls, have you heard of Russian dolls? Uh, if you haven't seen them before, there's a picture of some on your worksheets. Uh, uh, Russian dolls or stacking dolls are where you have maybe four wooden dolls uh, and each one is smaller than the last uh, and they all stack inside each other. Uh, and when they're all stacked inside each other, it looks like you only have one doll. But you lift the top one up and underneath is another one and underneath is another one and so on. There are dolls within dolls. On the surface it looks like there's just one doll but there's more. There's more. And in the same way there is an Israel within Israel. The top doll is like those who are part of the nation of Israel. Uh, but inside there are uh, smaller dolls. Uh, which are like those who truly have faith in God. And this has been true at every stage in history. There are always more people who look like they have faith in Jesus than who actually do. There are always more people who call themselves Christians than who are truly converted. There are always more people who attend church than who are actually saved. That's true today and it was true in Paul's day. God's people outwardly aren't all God's people inwardly. So, so why does Paul feel the need to stress this now? We'll look back to the first five verses of the chapter. Uh, we looked at them last time. We saw Paul's anguish. And what was the reason for his anguish? It was that by and large the Jewish people had rejected the Jewish Messiah. And Paul is deeply grieved about that for two reasons. Firstly, because he has deep love for his own people and he doesn't want to see them cut off from Christ like that, that astronaut uh, cutting the cord that, that ties him to the, to the space station. 
But secondly, Paul has this deep concern uh, for the glory of God uh, and that the rejection of their own Messiah by the Jewish people uh, would lead to others saying, well, the word of God has failed. The Jews had all these promises uh, and yet they haven't believed. Uh, For God's own people to reject his Messiah, it could easily look like the word of God had failed. Uh, and so what Paul wants to do here is show that the word of God hasn't failed and that doesn't just matter to Jews like him it matters for all of us because if God's word has failed for the Jews then we can have no confidence that it won't fail for us as well if God couldn't or wouldn't follow through on his promises to the Jews we could have no confidence that he would follow through on his promises to us So Paul wants to make it clear that the Jewish rejection of the gospel doesn't mean that the word of God has failed. And he does that by returning to a theme he's touched on a couple of times in the letter so far. Uh, We could say that uh, we've had trailers uh, for what we have today. Uh, We've had those trailers in chapter 2 and 4. And so when we get to chapter 9, it's a bit like watching a film and thinking, have I seen this before? This all seems familiar. When you haven't seen it, but but you've seen a trailer for it. And the first preview of what we're looking at today came in chapter 2. The verses are on your handout. Where Paul says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, not by the spirit, but by not or not by the letter, but by the spirit. In other words, yes, the Jews have rejected their Messiah, but actually, the the true Jews haven't. Because what makes someone a, a Jew in God's book isn't simply that they've been circumcised, that they've had a piece of skin cut off their bodies. But what makes someone a Jew is whether they've been given a new heart. Paul is saying that the Jews aren't simply those who've ticked the box on the census form. But they're those who have faith in Israel's God. Which some Jews did. uh, But others did not. God's people outwardly aren't all God's people inwardly. The second preview of what we're looking at today is in chapter 4 where Paul says that Abraham is the father of those who are not merely circumcised but they also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Or as Paul put it to the Galatians, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who is a true son of Abraham? Not simply someone descended from Abraham, but someone who shares Abraham's faith. If it were possible, a Jew could go on the Ancestry.com website and trace their family tree all the way back to Abraham and yet not share Abraham's faith and so not be truly a child of Abraham. It would be possible to have Abraham's blood running through your veins, but not of Abraham's faith in your heart. 
Or we could uh, say today someone could glory in being a d- direct descendant of the, of the Covenanters uh, and they could trace their, their ancestry back to the 1600s or, or they could trace their, their descent in a, in a particular church back for generations. But that blood in your veins means nothing if that faith is not also in your heart. God's people outwardly are not all God's people inwardly. Do you remember what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and Sadducees? Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as your father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. In other words, there's no point being called a child of Abraham if you aren't one inwardly. God's people outwardly aren't all God's people inwardly. Do you remember what Jesus said uh, to those who claimed that Abraham was their father but who rejected him? He said, shockingly, you are children of your father, the devil. The Jews were God's people in name in in Jesus' day and Paul's day. But not all those who were God's people in name had the reality. And it's the same today. Not all who are God's people in name have the reality. Uh, Maybe another way to to illustrate it would be to think of footballers. Uh, Sometimes a a father's footballing ability is passed on to his son. But at other times it isn't. And you'll see a succession of clubs sign the son in the hope that he'll be able to play like his father. Uh, But it doesn't always work like that. He might have a famous name on the back of his shirt, but his performances on the pitch are very different. Uh, Kenny Dalglish had a son called Paul. He played for a whole string of clubs. He played 10 times for Linfield, uh, but he never lived up to that name. Uh, no, no, it's not a perfect illustration because we're not talking here about uh, natural talent or ability. Uh, we're talking about spiritual life. We're talking about something that only God can grant. But I'm simply saying that it's one thing to have the name. It's another to have the reality. So do you see how this all applies to us? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel Literally not all who are from Israel are Israel. Sadly, not all who bear the name Christian are actually Christian. Being part of a church doesn't mean you're saved. And being part of a Christian family doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Boys and girls, you need to understand that. Uh, And the older people who've had the privilege of having Christian parents need to understand it too. Being part of a Christian family doesn't necessarily mean you're going to heaven. You must trust in Jesus for yourself. So have you done that? Don't make the the tragic mistake of thinking that because you have the name of a Christian, when many, many around us don't, that you are actually a Christian. Is your faith real or is it plastic? Is it aimed at impressing other people or or keeping other people off your back or or pacifying your conscience? God's people outwardly aren't all God's people inwardly. 
And so do you see why the elders of a, of a church might say to someone, we don't think you're ready yet for membership. Not because some people are worthy of it uh, and other people aren't. But because as the elders talk to that person and they try to, to, to probe below the, the surface level, the top level Russian doll, they don't see anything underneath. And it may not be that that person is trying to pull the wool over their eyes. That person may genuinely think of themselves as Christian. And as elders, we can't see into anyone's heart. Uh, But we do have the responsibility to gently probe beneath the surface and see if there's anything there. Because God's people outwardly aren't all God's people inwardly. And sadly, it it may be that there are some who are already in the membership of the church, even of this church, but but only have the outer layer. And one of the things that that pains James and I the most is when we try and lift up that outer layer through gently asking questions, and it doesn't really seem like there's anything underneath. Now, the last thing that I want to do is unsettle someone who does have true faith. Not everyone can talk about their faith as freely as others. We're all different. But if all someone can talk about is the outer layer, what they do, how long they've been part of the church, then that's a worry. Because as we saw last time, there are only two options, to be in Christ or to be cut off from Christ. To live forever in heaven under God's blessing or to experience eternal death in hell under his curse. And simply being in church doesn't mean someone is a Christian. God's people outwardly are not all God's people inwardly. But then secondly and more briefly, God's people aren't chosen because of what they do. God's people aren't chosen because of what they do. Or to put it more directly, what you do doesn't make you a Christian. What you do doesn't make you a Christian. My worry is that there are some who could agree with pretty much everything that I've said so far today and say, you're right, it's not just about having the name Christian. It's about what you actually do. It's about going to church. It's about helping people. It's about not swearing. It's about reading the Bible with your children. Uh, Yes, there there are some people who just call themselves Christians, but I actually live it out. Uh, And don't get me wrong, living it out is important. If someone doesn't live it out, they're not a Christian. But simply living it out doesn't make you a Christian. Do you see the difference? We would expect someone who claims to be a Christian to live a, a distinctively Christian life. And that's, that's the right expectation. But living a distinctively Christian life doesn't make someone a Christian. We see this in verse 11 particularly, which speaks of God's choice of one twin over the other. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. They had done nothing bad uh, that they might be rejected. They had done nothing good that they might earn God's favour. And before either 
they had done good or bad, God made his choice. Paul has said in verse 7, uh, we've largely been unpacking uh, this so far, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. For a long time, Abraham had no children. And then he had two uh, boys and girls, do you remember? Uh, Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And it is through Isaac, uh, we're told here, that Abraham's offspring will be named. Uh, the, the word named there, it, it would probably be better, better the word called. Uh, it's the same word used in Romans 4 for God calling, calling things into existence that don't yet exist. It, it's used in Romans 8 for God calling people to himself. Uh, those whom he predestined, they also called. It's used here in verse 11, not because of works, but because of him who calls So Abraham has two sons, but God is only going to call one out of darkness. And it won't be Ishmael, but Isaac. But someone is going to say, well, yes, of course God called Isaac and not Ishmael, because Ishmael was illegitimate. He was the son of Abraham and Abraham's maidservant, or Sarah's maidservant. And and more than that, when Ishmael grew up, he mocked Isaac. Genesis 21, 8, Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And someone could say, well, yes, Ishmael was Abraham's son in name. He, he was part of the people of God, yes, but his mother was a foreigner. And when he grew up, he was a mocker. And so God chose Isaac because Isaac actually lived out his faith. But Paul's next example blows that out of the water. Because he goes on to talk about Rebecca and her twins, Jacob and Esau. Unlike Ishmael and Isaac, who had different mothers, Paul's now talking about twins. uh, The same mother and the same father. Uh, And though, verse 11, they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. So here you have twin boys lying in two cots, one beside the other. Uh, The only advantage one could possibly claim over the other is that he was born a few minutes earlier. Uh, Have you ever heard twins going on like that? One says, well, I'm the oldest twin. And the other says, well, yeah, by a whole 10 minutes. We're always looking for some advantage. But just in case anyone thinks God would be impressed by that, he says the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. And God told that to their mother before they were born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And do you see the message to someone who says, well, I'm not like that Russian doll with nothing underneath because I do this and this and this. Uh, The simple message is that it's not about what you do. If you think it is about what you do, I must say bluntly to you, that you don't yet understand the gospel and you're not yet a Christian. What you do compared to those around you, that does not make you part of God's people. Yes, as God's people, our lives should look different to those around us, but that is not what makes us God's people.
And then uh, as we draw things to, to a close, Paul says something which he, he expects will lead to people being up in arms. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, you can see how he anticipates that objections will come in verses 14 and 19. Uh, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For, for who can resist his will? We'll come to those objections next week, God willing. But just for now, consider the immediate objection that comes in the next verse. Is God unjust? Have you ever considered what us receiving justice from God would look like? If any of us were to receive justice based on how we have lived, uh, we would have no hope. There's a line in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice which says, Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. Our only hope is not justice based on what we've done, but mercy. We raise our eyebrows perhaps at the fact that God says, Esau I have hated. But actually what should knock us over in astonishment is that he says, Jacob I have loved. Jacob who had not yet been born and had done nothing by, by which he could deserve that love Jacob who when he was born would be a twister, a deceiver, a, a poor father who couldn't keep his children in check and yet God had set his love on him and through Christ despite our sin we can know the same love that if God could love Jacob he could love us because it's not based on works and so these verses should encourage us. It is not as though the word of God has failed. What's one of our biggest temptations today? Well surely it's to look at our lives. Uh, and uh, things don't seem to be going the way we thought they would go. Uh, and it's to look at the apparently slow progress of the gospel. And wonder if the word of God has failed. But here's a reminder when on the face of it, it looks like the word of God is failing or has failed. We need to remind ourselves of the bigger picture. And if we can see how God's word hadn't failed in Paul's day when it looked for all the world like it had. We can be confident that his word has not failed in our day either. The fact that in Paul's day people we'd expect to believe didn't believe, it did not mean that the word of God had failed. And it does not mean that in our day either. So these verses should encourage us. I trust they do encourage you today to put your confidence in God's word. But they should also humble us because they remind us that if we are God's people this morning, then we are who we are not because of who we're descended from, not because we're outwardly associated with the people of God, and not because of anything we've done, but it's all of grace. It's all God's riches to us in Christ. And so to return to the question we asked at the very beginning, what is it that makes someone a Christian? Maybe we should ask first, who is it that makes someone a Christian? 
It is God alone. That is our our whole theme this morning. God makes Christians. And what is it that makes someone a Christian? Repenting of their sin and putting their trust in Jesus. Have you done that? If you have, what a humble people we should be in our interactions with each other and in our interactions with unbelievers. No one here is any better than anyone else in here or or neither are we in here any better than those outside. Because what do we have that we did not receive? Amen. Well, let's respond to God's word by singing together from Psalm 6. Psalm 6, page 7. Psalm 6, page 7. Uh, tune 14 we need mercy from God not justice Uh, and this psalm speaks of God's mercy three times verse 1 the third line have mercy Lord for I am weak then the the last line of verse 2 return O Lord and free my soul and save me for your mercy's sake and finally, the confidence at the start of verse 5, O Lord, or the Lord, my cry for mercy hears. How tragic it is that there are some who never cry out to God for mercy. And why don't they cry out to God for mercy? Because they go to church and they think they don't need to. Or because their parents were Christians and they think they don't need to. Or because they, they intellectually understand the gospel And they think that is enough. And they think they're okay. But unless we cry out for mercy, we will never receive it. So all of Psalm 6 uh, will stand to sing praise.